right, so Exodus chapter 3. We're talking today about a scary calling. Now, I love my parents. My parents are good parents. I don't want to give any impression that I had a poor childhood or anything like that. It was awesome. Uh, a lot of fun. I was talking about Halloween and going out to trick-or-treat when I was a kid. And, you know, back in those days, they didn't try to cancel it for rain or anything like that. Um, yeah, it was kind of like, uh, I remember going out in the rain and coming home like after a half hour to change costumes because I was drenched, but you know, there was more candy to be had. Plus you could go back to the same houses if you had a different costume, right? Some of you know the strategy here. So anyhow, I had a great childhood, but I have to confess something about my parents. My parents were mean. They were mean. I mean, they just... Some of you feel my pain. Some of you are going to be like, wow, I didn't even know parents did that. But, but some of you will feel what I'm talking about today. Because here's the thing that my parents did. They made me do things that I was afraid to do lots of times. I remember when I was maybe five or six, McDonald's had a contest. Uh, and it was the one right on 42. It's all rebuilt now. It's a different thing. Back in the day, we had the Grimace Shaker and the, you know, the burger high top thing and all the, all the fun death toys that were there back then. Um, but I was like five or six and they had this contest going on where if you could go up to the, to the, the counter and say the Big Mac slogan, you could get a prize. So you had, and he had to say it in a certain, like under five seconds or something like that. So there's all these cashiers who looked giant to me, you know, five-year-old me. And so I knew it. I knew it was too, I'll be Patty special. I knew the whole thing, right? And I timed myself and I knew the whole like dealio, but, and I wanted the prize. So I was like, mom and dad, listen, if I go up there, I can get a prize. And they were like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And I said, okay, come on. And they said, no, you can go. And I was scared to go up to the counter because it felt dangerous to me, you know? I mean, I'm just a little kid, and how, how is this okay? And yet, mom and dad were like, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And so I was torn. I didn't feel fine at all. I felt anything but fine. I felt overwhelmed by the sense of danger, but I really wanted that prize. So I went up, and I said it, and I got the prize, and everything turned out okay. It was one of the many instances in my life where my parents did that to me over and over again. I remember as a teen looking for a summer job and, and you know, my mom and dad had connections and I kept thinking, you know, you'll, you'll hook me up with a job here, right? And they were like, no, there's, there's a phone book and there's a phone and call around and find out who's hiring. And I was like, seriously? And they're like, yeah. And I, and I, I just, I remember picking up the phone and like, hi. And I, just that, that sense of dread and I don't know if I'm gonna say the right thing. I don't know if I'm gonna embarrass myself. And they would make me do that. And what it, Turns out, I don't know if you've realized this yet or not in life, and there's lots of zones in which fear storms in, but here's the reality that we learn, and my parents trained me to learn. There is a difference between feeling scared or being afraid and actually being in danger. There is a difference between feeling afraid and actually being in danger. Sometimes they line up, but how often in your life have they not? And what's the difference? How does someone like my parents know that I'm not going to be destroyed by going up to a McDonald's counter and saying my little thing? And I don't. Some of it is experience. Some of it is 
wisdom and journey and, and spiritual depth and those kind of things. But as an adult, I realized that be, being confronted with fear and pushing through it was a vital part of me growing up. And I don't know that all parents realize that today. You look at your kid and you see them afraid and you just want to rescue them. And you feel like that is a good And I'm telling you, there are times when you have to, but there are also times when that is a problem that is appropriate for your child to learn that fear and danger are not the same thing, and sometimes they need to face up to their fear, being able to feel that fear and step forward anyway. What I find in this world is that fear dominates so much of our lives. It drives decisions that we make, but more importantly, it drives the way that we look at our lives We are afraid and we know what we don't want. And so we spend our lives pushing away what we don't want, but we never get to the place where we start pursuing or stepping into what is good and what we do want because we're so convinced that there's danger all around and that any misstep would be catastrophic. And the world, of course, helps us. We are exposed to reasons to be afraid all the time because it is a powerful motivator. It's not the most powerful motivator, but it's a powerful one, and it's a reliable one. People can get you to listen if they can get you to believe that there's something to be afraid of. Unfortunately, many Christians have faith in fear. Many Christians believe that if I just know everything to be afraid of, then I will be safe. If I can just pay attention to all the things that are dangerous, then I can make sure that I interact with none of them and I'll be okay. Some churches and some churches that I've been a part of have used fear to motivate other believers to try to get them to stop doing what's bad and start doing what's good. And and so you use fear in that way to try to... Or believers, just like unbelievers, will let fear take over the steering wheel of their life. The problem is that having faith in fear will keep you stuck. God has a purpose for your life, and that purpose is big. I know you all are like, well, I'm just me. I'm just a nobody. God has a purpose for your life, and that purpose is supernaturally big. Because it is big, it will be scary, but it is worth facing your fear. And I say that to you as we step into a a holiday season where maybe lots of people will be open to coming to church and God will prompt you to invite people out to church and you're like, I don't know if I can say anything. I don't know if I'll mess up. I don't know if I'll know the right answers. And I'm saying to you in this moment, your calling is big and it will be scary. The enemy and your flesh will highlight all the dangers trying to make you stop moving forward asking you to throw in the towel and just stay safe. I'm saying to you, I don't believe that's what God wants you to do. And I don't believe that's actually what you're going to have liked doing when it all plays out. The story we read in Exodus 3 is a story about God beginning this conversation with Moses about his calling. And when God begins this conversation with Moses, I believe that it is a fearful, scary thing for Moses. He hears what God says to him, and I think we'll, we'll pull this apart as we read through the story, but I think what Moses hears resonates with him as, I am definitely not enough for what God is asking me to do. This is too big, and I'm really sure if I try it, I will fail. So I'd rather just 
opt out. I'd rather say, no, thank you. And as as we read how God showed up, there are details to the story in this narrative. And people like to say, well, it doesn't matter the narrative, but, but there's teaching in the narrative. So as you hear this, why did God choose to show up like this? Like that's, that's what's supposed to register with us. God shows up to Moses in a certain way. Why? What was he, why did he make this choice and why did he show up in this way? Ultimately, what God is going to ask Moses to do is much more intimidating than where it starts. He starts with the burning bush and that's what we read about in Exodus chapter three. So read with me, Exodus chapter three, verses one to three. It says this, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So Moses, just out here doing his thing, and, and, and as he's writing this story, he starts kind of by answering the question, why did Moses wind up on this mountain far, far away? For us, it's not a big deal. Does anybody, has everybody been to like Mount Horeb? We don't even actually know where it is. And, you know, as, as we're thinking it's a far way, it doesn't really matter to us too much because we're not so familiar with the thing. But Moses is writing this to Israelites who have just journeyed through that area. And he, you know, they get to the mountain of God and they go up and he receives the Ten Commandments. And then they get, I'm sure when they got near where Jethro lived and his, he's like, now that's where I lived for 40 years and stuff. And so the people of Israel are like, now Moses, you say God had a burning bush on this mountain and yet you lived all the way over there. Why did you? And so Moses starts with the detail. He went, he took the flock a far way away to the far side of the wilderness, probably for grazing or something like that. He just mentions it. But he starts to give us a sense of who he is and what's going on in his life at this time. 40 years after we closed the last chapter, he ran away from Pharaoh. So we find a few things. First of all, Moses is now a shepherd. And shepherd seems like a fine career and all that stuff. What we don't know is that shepherding was looked upon as a repulsive occupation to the Egyptians. Egyptians thought shepherding was absolutely the bottom of the rung. It was for dirty foreigners and slaves. It was not respectable work for an Egyptian. And so Egyptians hated the idea of being a shepherd. And now Moses, for 40 years, was raised in the house of Pharaoh. He's taken on a job as a shepherd. Does that tell you something about his mindset? After 40 years, he's pretty convinced that Egypt... He's in the past. You know, he's, he's not really going home again. He's not really going to see his family again. He's not really thinking, I'm leaving the door open. I'm just waiting for God to send me back so I can do all the things I'm supposed to do. Moses isn't thinking that. Moses is thinking, that's all done. That chapter is closed. It's over. Now, this is my life. This is who I am. At the same time, We recognize as we read the word of God that God has prepared more than one leader by having them tend sheep. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, pastors are called shepherds and Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd or the great shepherd. And so there is this picture of shepherding that is a a training ground for leaders. Moses wouldn't have seen that, but we see that. We see God at work behind the scenes. 
The other thing we recognize for a man who grew up in the palace of Egypt is that Moses is tending his father's flocks, his father-in-law's flocks, Jethro's flocks. And what that tells us is that he didn't have money of his own. He didn't go out here and build a fortune. He was out here just as a blue-collar worker, dependent most likely on his father-in-law to provide for his needs and the needs of his family. And so he's basically a nobody with nothing no natural connection, no real hope of any standing, of any status, of any anything. He's a nobody. And he's off by himself in the wilderness. All of a sudden, he sees off in the distance a fire on a mountain. And he says, I, I think I'm going to go find out what's over there. Moses has 40 years of proof that he's a nobody. 40 years of proof. And then... God shows up. And what we find when Moses says, I'm going to go find out what's going on, is that the angel of the Lord appears to him on this mountain from within a bush. The angel of the Lord is a fascinating study in the Old Testament. We don't have time for it all today, but 67 times in the Old Testament, it's referred to the angel of the Lord appeared. And there are good reasons, really strong reasons, to believe that it's more than an angel, the word angel meaning messenger. It is actually God in the flesh. Some of it is even in this passage here. The angel appears to him from the bush and later God calls to him from within the bush. And so they're kind of equated to one another, not just in this passage, but others. And so our understanding of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, starts to get us to understand that this very well may be a pre-incarnation form of Jesus showing up. And so think about that. Here's this nobody doing a dirty job that he would have never considered doing for the first 40 years of his life. He's out here with nobody, hiding out, scared. You know, that, that probably that, that big, big fear has, has reduced, but thought of going back to Egypt is nowhere near because he's still very, very aware, I could die if I go back to Egypt. And so he's out here in the middle of the wilderness. He takes the sheep on this long journey to go graze somewhere on this foreign mountain. He sees this bush. And what we find out is that it is God himself appearing to this nobody in this bush. God shows up to someone who believes they have no worth and no value, that they are a failure forever, that they will never recover from what happened, that what they had in their heart to do, that I'm going to help people who are downtrodden, is over for them because they've blown it so bad that they could never come back. And so God himself shows up. And he has a personal audience with the creator of the universe. How cool is that? Does that tell you anything about God? Maybe, maybe God loves us anyway. Maybe even though you've blown it and even though you've wrecked things in your life and even though they're not recoverable and you still suffer under the weight of the things that have happened to you or or the messes that others have made in your life, maybe God still cares about you you personally enough to show up in your life in moments when you are convinced that there's nothing left for you he comes and he says but i still have more for you he shows up in this small bush he could have shown up any he's god anyway he could he could have shown up in the sky he could have been like you know, Moses just stand there watching sheep and God just shows up behind him. He's like, hey, Moses, you know, taps him. Like he could have done anything, right? 
What does he do? He has a bush burning up on a mountain that Moses notices. And then a little while later, it's still burning. And a little while later, it's still burning. He's like, that's not right. Moses notices it, and God uses what Moses notices to invite Moses to come. And so Moses comes. Moses makes his way. That bush is meant to attract Moses' attention and get him to come closer. How often is God using what you notice to invite you to come closer? What's on your mind this morning? What's been on your mind this week? What's dominated the, 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 the ways that your brain is working and you're processing life? Those are the things you're noticing. Is it possible that the enemy wants to use those things for one purpose, but God wants to use it to invite you to come closer? To say, yeah, I know. Now that you, we're on the same page here, I know. Come here. Come on. And Moses steps forward. He notices that what normally happens in nature is not happening here. And soon Moses will learn that that's just a sample of what God's about to do. The way that God is going to use him to deliver Israel from slavery. We should learn from Moses that God uses moments before the moment. To train us. To teach us. There are things in my life that I can look back on and I can think, that's where God was working to teach me this thing about unfairness, about the opinions of others, about uh, what to do when gossip comes your way. Like God is showing you and teaching you. And as he's teaching you, it's not because you've arrived at the moment yet, but he's teaching you in the moments that come. And so even in this moment, God is showing Moses, listen, I'm in charge of nature. And I'm going to do things that are impossible in nature. You better get used to it. You better be convinced that I can do it because you're going to stand in front of a really powerful man and say, God's going to do this and you better have faith that I'm going to do that thing. So God is preparing Moses, this nobody out on the side of a hill. Then pick it up with me at verse four down to verse six. The story goes on. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Moses makes his way up the mountain to this burning bush. And when he gets there, The Bible tells us, Moses records, that God speaks to Moses. And the first thing he does is he calls Moses' name twice. Now, you could say if you're, you know, you have that idea about men never listening, that he needed to call it twice because he didn't listen the first time. But I would say this reflects a cultural tendency when you are really good friends or very close to someone, to say a name twice is to express tenderness to call someone your best friend, to say that there is trust and affection that is shared between us. And so God initiates with Moses by saying, Moses, Moses. Not only does, I mean, can you imagine walking up a hill and you're looking at a burning bush and suddenly you hear a voice coming out of that bush? It might've taken you a second, right? You think you're looking at a fire. It turns out you're meeting with your creator and you're about to hear some things that that are going to, feel overwhelming to you. 
But the first thing God does when he begins to speak is to reference the fact that he loves Moses, that he knows Moses. And if you remember, Moses' name refers to God's saving of him when he was an infant, drawn out of the water. Moses, remember your story. Remember what I've done for you. I know you. I see you. I'm here with you. I'm talking to you. We're friends, right? We're good, right? And Moses is thinking, we are? I, I didn't know that. I, I thought that was over. I thought that was done. I thought I was disqualified. I thought that was a long time ago in the past. Some people in your life and some people in this room think that your closeness with God was a long time ago. And right now, God's coming to you and saying, hey, we're good, right? I love you. You're mine. Come close. Come close. I pray that you will respond to that invitation from the Spirit of God today. And so when, he, when Moses comes up, he says, stop, stay there, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So God says to Moses, in, in, in the same time of expressing his love for Moses, he also expresses his greatness, his grandeur, his holiness. He is more than just a fire in a bush. He says, listen, you are in front of the creator of the universe, so don't come grab the bush or anything like that and take off your sandals. You are on holy ground. Both instructions are given for Moses' benefit so that Moses understands this is real. This isn't imaginary. This isn't something he's making up in his mind. It's not happenstance. It's not circumstance. He's giving Moses this idea that he is in front of exactly who he thinks he's in front of, Almighty God, and it's time to show respect. And so there's this taking off of the sandals that gives Moses ways to recognize both internally and externally that he is in front of the Lord God. Take off your shoes and don't come closer than that. And then God defines who he is. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Moses hears who he's in front of, it's the first time in this story that we see a reaction from Moses that is fear. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses realizes very quickly, I am out of my depth. I am in front of someone I don't deserve to be in front of. I am in front of Almighty God. And so he hides his face. He does what we do when we're overwhelmed with fear. We try to protect ourselves. We try to hide ourselves from what we think is dangerous. Moses is reacting to that idea that seeing God, being in the presence of God is dangerous. Before, he was like, I'm going to go see what's going on. And now he's like, I don't want to see what's going on. Because when God showed up in Moses' life, it was a lot. Some of us feel far away from God because we're scared of him. We recognize our unworthiness. We recognize our weakness. We recognize our failure. And we have yet to embrace by faith that God invites us to see him anyway. It isn't because we earned it. It isn't because we deserve it. None of us do. It's because we have one who rescues and saves and forgives. We have one who gave his life so that we could live. And so the author of Hebrews tells us, therefore we come boldly into the throne room. Not because we earned it, but because he made us his children. And so here we come. What's the message 
When God calls Moses and says, I am the God of your father and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses, Moses. The message is simply this. Moses isn't the outsider he thinks he is. He belongs. God knows him. He has purpose. He has been called by name. He has been invited to hear from the creator himself. He has an exclusive audience with God. The foundation for what God is about to do in Moses for the rest of the story of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy comes out of a moment where God shows up to someone who believes they're a nobody, who is forgotten, who has lost all sense of belonging, all sense of community, all sense of ever being a fit with people. He has lost all that and God shows up and it starts here where God says, you're wrong, Moses. I know you. I want you and I got plans and I'm going to invite you to come with me. And he does that in the next couple of verses. So keep reading with me. Verse seven down to verse 11. It says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God comes to Moses and he says, listen, it's time for you to face your fear. I know this feels scary, Moses, but this is the deal. This is what we're going to do. We're going to step and I'm going to give you the big picture. The big picture is I'm going to send you to deliver my people from Egypt. But before he gets to that, he gives Moses two things, two ideas that help all of us if we hold on to them in those scary moments. First verse, he talks about, I have seen the misery of my people. And verse nine, he talks about the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the the Egyptians are oppressing them. Here's what the first concept when things are scary is God knows about the hard things in our life and it matters to him. He hears us when we cry out to him. He listens and he is moved by what hurts us. Do you believe that? That God is attentive to what hurts you? Because when I'm scared, one of the things it brings into me is the doubt that I don't know if God's paying attention. I don't know if it matters to God. This hurts. I don't know if he cares. First thing God says is, I see their suffering. And it matters to me. The second thing he says is, I have promised and I'm going to. Verse eight, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, an abundant land. Second thing that we have to hold on to when it's scary is this. Not only does God see our suffering and it matters to him, but the second thing is God, for his people, God will always deliver us. Always. Now, I'm not saying it's the way that you're asking for God to deliver you. For 40 years, the children of Israel suffered in slavery. 
And they were like, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Where are you, God? And none of them would have imagined that God is going to send this reject back to them to start doing crazy magic stuff, and sticks turning into snakes and rivers turning into blood and all like crazy stuff. None of them imagine how God is going to save them and rescue them. But the children of Israel had the opportunity to know because God had promised that he would redeem them and give them a land flowing with milk and honey. God gives us the promise and invites us to trust him in that promise as he calls us into stuff. See? There are things in your life that God has called you to do, but he's already given you promises that you're supposed to hold on to as you step into that calling. And knowing that God will deliver us, every time I'm scared, if I go, listen, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know this. A thousand years from now, God will have me fine. I will be delivered. I will be great. I will be enjoying the, the existence that he has promised, that he has given me. And so I don't know what the journey is from here to there, but I know where it winds up. And I know I'll be glad. Anytime you're afraid, these two thoughts can give you strength and courage to go forward and face your fear anyway, that God cares and that God delivers. And so verse 10, after God gives them those promises and gives them that, he says, so now go, I am sending you. I think Moses is listening along like, okay, good. That sounds good. I don't know why you're telling me all this, but yeah, those people in Israel, you've heard from them. Yeah, I remember them. I I was there a while ago, whatever. And he's kind of like, that's good. That's good. And so verse 10 shows up and Moses is like, wait, what? So now go, I am sending you. Do you see what God said? I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Do you feel the fear? I'm not sure we can imagine how Moses felt at these words. Panicked, resistant, stunned. But what he hears from the Lord is against every safety that he's built for himself over 40 years. Because what God says is, I am going to rescue them. But what Moses hears is the second part, I am sending you. God started with, I am going to rescue them. But he ended with, I am sending you. All Moses heard was the, I am sending you. Moses, the outcast, the refugee, invited by God to be the rescuer that he was made to be, the rescuer he thought he was going to be 40 years ago. But after 40 years of believing that that part of his life was over, that that identity was gone, suddenly God says, it's time for you to do what you were made to do. But instead of Moses going, yes, finally, Moses pushes back. We get that sense that Moses is just filled with fear. He has run from danger and it feels like that's what he needs to do again. Sure, it was hard being disappointed in how your life turned out, but it sure is safer than going back into the danger, right? Some of us are real comfortable with the disappointment if it means I don't have to go face that again. I'll live with just giving up. But God comes to Moses and God comes to us many times and says, okay, listen, enough of that. Now it's time to step into your calling. This calling seems dangerous. God doesn't tell him Pharaoh's dead. That Pharaoh that that wanted to kill him is dead. God doesn't tell him that his people are ready. He just says, this is what I'm going to do. Now trust me and follow me. Many times God doesn't give us all the stuff that he's done. He expects us just to trust that he's got it. 
And I think God could have said to Moses, listen, that Pharaoh that wanted you dead, he's dead. Now there's a new Pharaoh, and I'd like you, he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And Moses hears, he wants to kill me. And God says, I'm going to send you to deliver the Israelites. And he's like, they hate me. God doesn't clarify all of it. He just says, this is what's going to happen. And Moses answers, who am I? How does Moses answer the question, who am I? I'm a failure. I'm an outcast. I am unwelcome. I am unneeded. I am more problem than I am worth. I am incapable. I am weak. I am disqualified. I am inadequate. Even in my own family, I am the youngest child in my own family. I don't even have standing if I were still in my family to even be somebody in my family. I am nobody. Moses' problem is that he thought God's calling was about him. When God had already made it clear that his calling was about him. The calling in your life is going to be scary. Sharing Jesus, living a life of faith, walking into danger and having peace. It's going to be scary and you're going to be afraid. But God uses those moments to remind you that God's calling is big on purpose. That it requires supernatural power for you to fulfill everything God wants for you to do. Because in the end, what he's doing with your life is something eternal, not something in the here and now. That's something you can't do. That's something only he can do. So when you're intimidated, if you have not been intimidated by God's call in your life, if you are not afraid of God's calling in your life, you probably don't know what God's calling in your life is. Because it will always be more. I hear this all the time. God won't give me more than I can handle. Man, that is so wrong. God will never give you more than he can handle. And by the way, that verse is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It's talking about temptation. He will not give you more temptation than you can bear, but he will make a way of escape. So the idea is God will ask you to do more than you can do, but he'll start by saying, listen, I'm going to do it in you. Now, will you trust me? Will you step forward in faith, believing that God has what it takes? For Moses, God calls and he has to face his fear. And when he does, Israel is redeemed. For us, God calls us into what we fear. And he asks us in that fear, do we trust him more or our fear more? He invites us into our purpose and that purpose cannot be accomplished without him. But with him, it will resonate forever.